Some of you may remember the name Jim Fix. When I was in high school, he wrote the book on running called The Complete Book of Running, which became the best-selling nonfiction book up until that time. He, he was famous for his expertise on how to run, the mechanics of it, uh, on the benefits of running, and he helped fuel the uh, running fad that occurred at that time. On July 20th, 1984, Jim Fix was found lying beside the road, dead of a heart attack on his daily run. He was 52 years of age. This was a guy who looked from the outside to be one of the most in-shape, healthy guys you'd ever come across. And yet things were not well on the inside. And that's kind of the point that James is driving home to us in our text today. Looks can be deceiving. We can look religious. We can look like we've got it all together. We can look like a true Christian without truly being one. And that's absolutely terrifying. And, but James is simply following what his half-brother said as well. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so it's chilling to think we can deceive ourselves into thinking everything is good when it's not. But here's the good news. James tells us to lose our outward display of religion and instead find the gospel of Jesus Christ instead, and that will transform our lives from the inside out. He, he says we can lose our self-deceived religion and find the gospel, and he wants us to do that so we're not like Jim Fix. Because none of us want to die self-deceived, thinking we're healthy when we're not. And so we read in verses 19 through the end of the chapter of James chapter 1, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet, not does, uh, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we do come before you this morning asking you to teach us from your word that the truths and application of your word would be made clear to each one of us by your spirit this morning. Help us to be doers of the word, but in such a way that we are uh, having a, a pure and undefiled religion in your sight. That is our desire. That is our goal. And we know that it can be done with the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. I mean, James has, has already clearly taught us 
that if we're merely hearers of God's word, we've deluded ourselves because we must be doers of God's word as well. Uh, In other words, our salvation is proven by our obedience to God. Not that our obedience to God saves us, but it's a sign that we are saved. And so now in the last two verses of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, James gives us another warning about deceiving ourselves with false religious doings. And the doings in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but the practice of them can delude us with a comfortable sense of religiosity, if you will. Uh, The word religion is repeated three times in our text here, and it indicates an outward forms of religion. So, So think of it this way. If someone carries their Bible and are somewhat familiar with it, if they read Christian novels and they attend church at least twice a month, if they sing the songs, if they look like they're listening to a sermon, and if they give, well, then they can deceive themselves into thinking they're okay just by doing those things. But James, along with Jesus, argues that what's inside of you will show itself on the outside in some way. And neither Jesus or James or any other biblical author taught that our works can save us. They can't. But for those who have looked upward to God and salvation from him alone, who've received new life, a new heart by God's will and work alone, that transformation within will show itself outwardly in forms of true religion. God transforms us from the inside out. And James is telling us this is what this is going to look like. First of all, he says, you have to control what's inside you, especially your speech. You must care for those outside of you, especially those in need. And you must keep yourself from worldliness so that it doesn't corrupt you on the inside. So he begins with something that we all struggle with, the tongue, in verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You know, James compares the tongue to a powerful horse, which will take off on a wild ride if the the reins are not kept firm. I'm not a horseman, but I did have the experience of working with a couple of Percheron horses logging. Uh, You know, they're ready to work, and yet all you have to control them are two thin reins in your voice. Tongues are hard to control, just as horses at times are. And there are actually people, James says, who who consider themselves to be religious. They follow their list of rules, but he says they have galloping tongues. Therefore, they're self-deceived. In fact, he says all their religious worship is worthless. It's an exercise in futility. So James is telling us here, an out-of-control tongue suggests a false religious devotion, no matter how well we might carry out our duties. It's been well said, a true test of man's religion is not his ability to speak, as we're so often apt to think, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. Uh, A great linguistic uh, one time said, I am fluent at keeping silent in seven languages. It's difficult to bridle the tongue. Uh, Jesus gives many examples. He was in in an exchange with the Pharisees, 
And he said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Our tongues inevitably will reveal what's on the inside. And that's especially true in times of stress or pain. So what kind of speech do we need to rein in? Well, we could spend several sermons on that. Uh, briefly, Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. We're also told, therefore, each of you put off falsehood, speak truthfully. So no unwholesome talk, no lying. We could go on, no gossip, no filthy speech. Uh, but the outwardly religious person characteristically will avoid lying and filthy speech but oftentimes falls easily to backstabbing, to slander. And these sins come out because we have an unbridled tongue. And these people are the ones that are constantly carping, they're critical, they're judgmental. John Calvin himself was often the victim of that kind of speech. He wrote this, When people shed their grosser sins, they are extremely vulnerable to contract this complaint. A man will still steer clear of adultery, of stealing, of drunkenness. In fact, he will be a shining light of outward religious observance and yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal. It is a lust for vilification. This explains the bloated pharisaical pride that feeds indulgently on a general diet of smear and censure. Now, oftentimes, we as Christians are guilty of this kind of speech. No, we wouldn't tell a falsehood. No, we wouldn't do this or that, but we slander or talk behind people's back. And sometimes it's inferred, sometimes it's shouted, but it always comes from a sinful heart. To try to be clear, James doesn't mean that those who sometimes fall into this sin have a worthless religion and are not saved. That's not what he's saying. We're all guilty of doing this at times. James is saying that if our tongue is habitually unbridled, even though your church attendance may be perfect, your Bible knowledge envied by others, and your prayers many and your ties generous, if your tongue is unbridled, you deceive yourself. Your religion is worthless. So true Christianity, when the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed our life, it will control our tongue. It's been said that once while John Wesley was preaching, he noticed a, a lady in the audience and she was known for her critical attitude. And all through the service, she sat and stared at his new tie. When the meeting ended, she came up to him and said very sharply, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It's an offense to me. He asked if any of the ladies present happened to have a pair of scissors. And when they were handed to him, he gave them to his critic and asked her to trim the streamers to her liking. After she clipped them off very high up near the collar, he asked, are you sure they're all right now? And she said, yes, that's much better. He then said, let me have those shears a moment. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a bit of correction. I must tell you, madame, that your tongue is an offense to me. It's too long. Please stick it out. I'd like to take some off. Don't you wish you had that kind of courage? 
on another occasion, someone said to him, uh, someone said to him, no, that's, I, that quote's wrong. Never mind, we'll skip that one. Uh, we'll go on. Anyway, he, he, he did, you know, Charton, uh, the Wesley brothers are known for their methodical, but they also had a sense of humor too. But anyway, uh, Spurgeon writes this, that which is in the well will come up in the bucket, and that which is in the heart will come up on the tongue. An unbridled tongue denotes an unrenewed heart. Oh, that God would ever give us grace in our heart to move our tongue aright. Then as the water guides the whole ship, our tongue will guide our whole body, and the whole of our person will be under control. Isn't that our desire? Isn't that what we want? Think of it this way. If we could play back the tape of your speech this past week, what would we hear? You know, it's been said that we speak 18,000 words a day. I've never counted. That seems like a lot. Maybe that's an average between females and... No. Does anyone have a pair of scissors? But once again, we know that James isn't saying that Christians are perfect. We know that. We stumble in this. As a matter of fact, in James chapter 3, he goes on and says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. But the point is, the bridle, that whole image in both places, chapter 1 and chapter 3, is that control of the mouth shows what is on the inside. So yes, as Christians, we still sin. But we can and must control what comes out of our mouths. R.C. Sproul wrote, A true Christian keeps a tight rein on the tongue. James will have much more to say about the tongue later on, referring to James 3. But here he seems to refer to people who continually prattle. Don't you love that word, prattle? They say whatever pops into their head without listening to or caring about what others are telling them. They are too full of their own self-important ideas. Such people are not open to the word of God. They are not open to those God has appointed as teachers in his church. We must read the scriptures ourselves, but we must also listen to teachers or the Bible will come to simply mirror our preconceived ideas rather than the mirror of what God thinks and demands of us. The test of submission to the word is openness to what is taught. We're all to be doers of of God's word. But if we're doers, but we cannot control our tongue, we are not practicing the pure and undefiled religion that God wants us to practice. We must control our speech. But it doesn't stop there. He also tells us that we need to have compassion. We need to care for the needy. In verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Uh, The word for pure there is the Greek word that we get our words uh, uh, cathartic and catharsis from. And undefiled means without contamination, unpolluted, untainted, unspoiled, unstained. And you know, as you think of the Pharisees in the New Testament, they considered themselves pure and undefiled. They practiced all the ceremonial washings and cleansings. In other words, they thought of themselves as walking Mr. Cleans. They did a good job of showing off super religious, squeaky clean externalism. They had their long robes, their tassels, their prayers, their boasting of their giving, all of this. 
But man's most demanding outward legalism cannot clean up an inwardly depraved heart. Only Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection can do that. So, so James says, don't go by religion in man's sight. He says, let me instead tell you what is pure and undefiled true religion that is pleasing in God the Father's sight. Isn't that what we want? But then what does he tell us? It's visiting orphans and widows in their distress. I don't think it's a coincidence that, that God is described as father in this verse, the same verse that mentions orphans. It highlights God's very nature that's so often repeated throughout Scripture, cover to cover. God is the father of the fatherless. And the self-righteous religionists may not care for the orphans, but our God and Father in heaven does. And so will his children. Psalms 10 says this of God. He says, the unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. And to people who won't visit and defend the needy, God has words of rebuke. In Jeremiah 5, he says, they do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord. On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? In Proverbs 23, it tells us, don't go into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. Our God is the defender of the defenseless, the helper of the helpless, the father to the fatherless. He provides for them through, in the Old Testament, through his law and through his people. You know, in that day and age, in the pagan countries, unwanted children were often just left to die. As we come to New Testament times, we, we read that the early Christians were known for rescuing these babies and bringing them into their own families. You know, orphans at that day and age weren't cared for by the state or, or foundations or orphanages or anything. It, without family, they were certainly in distress, as verse 27 says. They were in desperate situations. They were vulnerable. And James mentions orphans and widows both here. And they were the most helpless people in society. Their, their distress, their pressures of life came from all sorts of directions. Desperate in need of food, shelter, clothing. And I believe James uses them as representatives of all people who are in need. But religious observances, no matter how perfectly observed and appropriately reverent, are empty if the tongue is not controlled, and if there is no concern for the needy around us. I mean, Jesus uses this same thought when he says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I mean, obviously, orphans without a protector, they're without a provider. They're in a desperate state. They are in great need. And Hosea says this of God, in you the orphan finds mercy. And if we're truly God's child, there will be mercy in our hearts towards those who are in need as well. And when James says, visit those in distress, does that just say hi and pass along? No. It includes a care, a concern, a compassion, as well as Christ-like actions to help them. 
We need a mercy that manifests itself and helps a brother or sister as it can. And so basically, the, the, the test that James lays before us here, it, it moves from our mouth to our mercy, right? Yeah, we can all you know, sit and participate in an elegant call to worship and prayer. We can heartily sing all the hymns and, and repeat the Apostles' Creed and pray the Lord's Prayer and listen when God's Word is preached. But if we ignore those in need around us, Our worship is nothing but ashes on an altar. And as I said, orphans and widows aren't the only types of people we must show the mercy of Christ to. But widows and orphans are a frequent, you know, as a kid I had trouble with ours, I still do at times. They're an example that God explicitly speaks of and uses us to show us his own nature as an example of what we're to be. I mean, orphans were to be taken care of and taken in by God's people. Sometimes within their own family, as the case of Esther, who had no father or mother, but Mordecai took care of her like his own daughter. But I think the the most beautiful picture in scripture is that of Mephibosheth. Not in King David's biological family, not at all. In fact, he was from Saul's family, the enemy's family. But had no parents, he was crippled. He was a visible picture of someone in distress. And David says to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness or mercy. You shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He was part of the family. You know, there is no natural explanation for that kind of thing. It's a supernatural work in the heart of a man after God's own heart, a God who is merciful uh, to the needy. We were all needy. We are all needy now. And the only explanation as to why we are saved and can have a seat at God's own table is that in his mercy and compassion, he has rescued us who were even more needy and helpless spiritually than Mephibosheth was physically. He adopts us into his family. We have a seat at his table. We are children of the king. You know, praise the Lord for his amazing adopting grace on our behalf, right? So we who are orphans, who have no claim on God or his righteousness, who have no right to his mercy, who have no right to sit at his table, have been visited by his son, Jesus Christ. And through his death and resurrection, he has brought us into his own family, adopting us. So when James says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, what does that look like today? I mean, obviously, not all of us are gifted for the same ministries. We won't all take care of widows. We won't all be foster parents or adopt children, although some of us may. No. Some of you may. Some of us will not. (laughs) Not unless they're adults. But all of us have to apply this. This is written to us. True religion, true Christianity, uh, the, 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 what God will ex- accept cannot exist apart from bridling the tongue, yes, but also caring for those who are in distress, 
physical distress, emotional distress, financial distress, relation, uh, re relational distress, and we can go on and on. Uh, John put this truth in these words. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? That is worthless religion. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. And so once again, James is telling us that our care for the needy must not just be by supporting social programs or through the hands of others. No, personally, we need to be involved. We're to be involved in their distress, the pressures of life which are squeezing them. Pressures due to illness, fractured relationships, unemployment, family tension, you name it. And James insists that true Christianity, acceptable religion, reaches out to these people in their needs. So worship that pleases God involves throwing ourselves on the altar and giving ourselves in service to those who are in distress. And if you're anything like me, at times I plead a lack of time or resource. You know, I really can't help. I can't do this. But I'm sure you've realized we always make the time and investment for what we truly want to do, don't we? And James clearly says, caring for one another, caring for others in need, caring for those in distress is pure religion that is acceptable to God. And you know, it's not my job anymore than it's your job to do this. And if we have no care for the needy, like the Pharisees who walked around the needy man in the road in the story of the Good Samaritan, that's what James calls worthless religion. In Luke 11, we have another interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. And once again, Jesus gets right to the point, right to the heart of their problem which was a problem with their heart. They were clean religiously to outside observers, but were corrupt inside. They didn't care for the helpless. They didn't care for the needy. They didn't care for the widows or orphans. Now, when Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he did not first ceremonially wash before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. But inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. We have a very similar passage in Matthew 23, where Jesus rebukes the self-righteous religious leaders for neglecting the weightier parts of the law, which are justice and mercy. It's not that other religious duties are unimportant or unnecessary, no. But as one translation puts it, these things are more important matters of the law, such as justice and mercy. 
You know, if we read Micah 6, 8, we know this is what God has always wanted. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy or kindness? True religion is justice to those in need, is helping those in distress. In Luke 21, Jesus makes an object lesson of the widow. He, he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. He said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus but it, uh, put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. She was a widow. She was in poverty. That was normal. She hardly had anything to live on, and she gave her last two coins. And oftentimes we only think of this as an illustration of sacrificial giving. But put it in the context of James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Was that widow with the two coins in distress? Was a burden being placed on her that should not have been placed on her? Possibly. It's as if Jesus is saying, Woe to you who abuse the widows, the distressed, the downcast, the poor, with your lying promises just to get their last sense. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Sounds like James, doesn't it? If anyone thinks himself to be religious, he deceives his own heart. His religion is worthless. So James is teaching us True Christianity reaches outward from ourselves. And the one another passages throughout the New Testament all relate to one another in the church body. Galatians 6.10. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to who? Those who are in the household of faith. Those in the family of believers. And because James speaks of brother or sister in need in the next chapter, I think we should especially be thinking of those within the body of Christ who are in distress, who need help. Are we bearing one another's burdens in this body? Can you think of someone you've ministered to in a way recently? An encouraging phone call, stopping for a visit, encouraging, praying. And, and always have the question in mind, how can I help those around me? And don't just think of food and finances, all those those things do need to be done. Think of practical, emotional, spiritual needs among us. And don't think Sunday is the religious day when we have to put on our best face and come and get along with one another and encourage. No, it's to happen all week long. Remember the directories I talked about earlier? You have no excuse for not being in contact. You've got the information. And, you know, there are all sorts of ways we can apply this, and I don't want to limit your thinking to one type or one segment of the population. I mean, this isn't to mean we are only to minister to widows and orphans. That's it. No, we know that's not. It's an example. Whatever God leads us to do for those in distress, for those who are needy, it shouldn't be done grudgingly. There should be a love behind it, right? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, to take care of the widows, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits what? 
nothing. So James says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit the widow and the orphan. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's the pastor's job to visit. James isn't writing to pastors. It's addressed to all Christians, all who have a true relationship with the Lord, all who have true religion should be visiting those in need. In other words, ministry is every Christian's job. No, not job, privilege. And maybe your excuse is you don't know what to do or say when you go to visit the orphan or the widow or the person in the hospital or whatever. I don't care. Go anyway. You don't have to say anything. Your presence speaks volumes. Express your concern. Comfort as you can. Be there. So what's true religion? Control your tongue. Care for the needy. And then thirdly, your character. We're to have an uncontaminated life. Keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Keep oneself unstained by the world. So James moves from care for those outside of you to keeping pure on the inside of you. He moves from charity to purity. And while getting your hands dirty, helping the needy, keep your heart clean. And James is going to have more to say about all these things. This is kind of a preview of what's to come. And we'll talk more about it later. But avoiding worldliness in your heart is part, an important part of pure and undefiled religion. In fact, if you do everything else in this verse but you fail here, your religion has failed. Your religion is faulty. As important as mercy and charity are, inner purity is equally important. And I don't have to tell you that today's world is polluted. It always has been. Isaiah's lament was true then, and it's still being lived out today. Where evil is called good and good evil, light is darkness and darkness is light. Things have been turned on their heads. Charles Spurgeon once again, charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity. I sometimes fear lest we should by no means insist too much on purity, but should certainly insist too little upon charity. The visitation of the fatherless and widows in their affliction is not left optional. It is not to be the privilege of a few worldly men who give all their substance to orphanages. Every Christian is bound to wear his part. Yet charity without purity will be of no avail. In vain should we give all our substance to the poor and give our bodies to be burned if we do not walk in the way of holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. If we do not come out from the world and keep ourselves from its polluting influence, we have not yet learned what pure and undefiled religion really is. We may be very orthodox in creed, or we may be very far advanced in our knowledge of religious matters, but we are in the sight of God only as sounding brass or an annoying symbol unless by divine grace we have learned to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. It's easy to become self-deceived in our religious cloaks, isn't it? And the word uh, keep here comes from a word that means to guard or or to be a warden. Uh, The verb meant to keep an eye on something, uh, especially something that was precious. It speaks 
of guarding your precious possessions. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Proverbs 4.23, it's translated as guard your heart above all else. Isn't that keeping oneself unstained by the world? We read there, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you deceitful mouth, bridle your tongue, and put devious speech far from you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. You know, that, that's a great commentary on the words, keep yourself unstained. Uh, observe yourself attentively. Be aware. Keep on watch. Be vigilant about remaining undefiled by the world. And notice as well, the keeping and the guarding is to be done by who? Keep oneself. And we can do that with the indwelling's powers. We're not told keep my neighbor unstained by the world, but keep ourselves. And too, sadly, too many of us have a tendency to focus on the faults of others, and we, we forget what we look like in the light of the mirror of God's word. So we're to keep oneself unstained by the world. What's that mean? Well, it's not the physical creation, obviously. It's the fallen world system headed by Satan. It's run mainly by unredeemed men and women who are alienated from God, who are hostile to his word. It refers to this present evil, man-centered, world-centered system, its thinking, its patterns, its lifestyles. You know, I like simple illustrations. Think of the world like a big body of water. We're to be like boats. Our purpose is fulfilled when we are on the water. But our boat is worthless if too much water gets into it. When too much of the world gets into us, we are being defiled by it. So we have to keep ourselves firmly anchored in the water of God's word and not let the water of the world pour into us. No, we're not to remove ourselves completely from the world, no. But we're not to be stained by the world. Paul has a parallel thought when he writes to Timothy and says, if a man cleanses himself from these worldly influences, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. What kind of good works? Well, things like visiting the orphans and the widows. Think back to the book of Genesis. Lot is an example of a man who was stained by the world. He, he, he started living towards Sodom, disregarding the spiritual climate of the area because of its prosperity. Eventually, he moves into the wicked city. He becomes part of the leadership. And a little of Sodom moved into Lot. And many Christians today are too much like Lot. Don't let that be true of you. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, man, sometimes I look at my life and I say things I shouldn't. Uh, sometimes I know there are needy people and I, and I don't show them a loving compassion by reaching out to them. Sometimes I do get lured in by the world's philosophy. Does that mean I'm not truly saved? Let me answer that question with another question. When you realize your tongue's been unbridled, you haven't been compassionate, or you've been stained by the world, what is your reaction to that? If your reaction is, I hate that within me, and you repent and confess it, that's the reaction of a redeemed heart. 
It's not our perfection that proves our salvation. No, it's the reaction to our imperfections. Do we all have things to repent of? Yes. Do we all have areas where we can grow in the use of our tongue and in our compassion for Yes. Must we all be constantly on guard to keep ourselves unstained? But Yes. And as we do these things, James shows us that is acceptable to God. Free from gossip, free from slander. Uh, we're to have a hands-on caring for the victims of the distresses and pressures of life. And we must be unstained by the world. So acceptable religion involves our words, right? It involves our hands, right? And it involves our hearts. May we live daily in all three of these dimensions for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you even though it is convicting. Father, we pray that we might repent of the sins that we have committed in these areas. And Father, that with your Spirit's help, we would grow and be strengthened so that we might bridle our tongue, so that we would joyfully, lovingly visit those in distress. And Father, that we would guard ourselves from the influences of the world around us. Father, help us to do this for your glory and for our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.